Well, good morning, everybody. Those in podcast land, I had to remember there are people listening. When I was a teenager, and I know it's hard for you to imagine me at 14 years of age, my mom worked full time. And one of my responsibilities on a Saturday morning was to do the family laundry. We rented an upstairs flat from a wonderful Italian family, and the basement laundry facilities consisted of a ringer washer and a clothesline in the garden. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the ringer washer, it was a large tub on four legs with an agitator. And you plugged it in, and you put the clothes in and the water, and it agitated. And after that, you had to take the laundry out of the tub and put it through a ringer. And so it consisted, the ringer, of two rubber-covered tubes through which you fed the sheets or the underwear or whatever you were washing. And out the other side came the damp clothes that you hung up. Unless, if you tried to put too thick a piece of clothing or bedding, in that case, the thing would jam. And then you flipped a lever at the side, and some of you are nodding in there. And the ringer flipped apart, and you had to take out the item and reset the ringer. You had to be grateful, be careful not to get your fingers or even your hand caught in the ringer. And it did happen to some people. So the term, I feel like I've been through the ringer, describes someone who's been squeezed by some situation that they're in. And today we're going to see how David reacts when he's put through the ringer. A situation arises in his life that would threaten his very existence. And as we read the Psalms, we get an idea of the situation which caused the psalmist to write that particular psalm. From the heading on Psalm 63, we read a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And as we said before, when reading the scripture, it's good to ask ourselves the question, who wrote the particular scripture, if that's possible? What was the scripture written about or written to? What was the situation? And then we can apply it to our present day situation. We're going to look at Psalm 63 today, but we're also gonna flip back to Psalm 3 because both of these Psalms were written during the time of David's fleeing from Absalom. And I suggested that you read 2 Samuel 13 to 15, a light reading, to get an idea of what was happening. But you could even go further and, and read further along to get a view of David's final response to the treachery. Before we continue, let's just pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to see how your chosen king reacted when he was put through the ringer. Father, may it be an example to us. May our faith be encouraged and increased. We thank you for all you've given us in this word, this wonderful word. So give us hearing ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Psalm 63, David's fleeing for his life. Years ago, it had been Saul he was running from, but now it's somebody much closer, his son Absalom. And the story is found in 2 Samuel 14. Things have come to this point that Absalom is now after his father's kingdom. But let's go back a bit. The last time when I covered Psalm 51, we read how Nathan, God's prophet, had declared that David had sinned. But in his message to David, as David confessed and repented and asked the Lord to forgive him, we know that God did that. The Lord declared through Nathan his sin had been put away. 
But there were going to be scars from his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And I thought about Nathan as he approached David. Can you imagine going to the, the big gun, <laughs> the king, and telling him what God had put on your heart? Do you wonder if he's fearful? There was a brave man to give that kind of counsel. And through Nathan, God said, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You've despised me. And he had gone back and, and said to David, I took you from the sheepfold. I gave you everything. And I would have even given you any more. But you've despised me. And he said, through Nathan, the Lord said, Behold, I'm going to raise up evil against you out of your own house. Now God is saying this. He's going to raise up evil against David out of his own house. And now we see how that's come about. We saw that six sons were born to his different wives when he reigned over Judah and Hebron. But when David was anointed king of Israel, over Israel, and took Jerusalem, it says he took more wives and concubines in Jerusalem and had 11 more children. And I thought, really? More wives? When Israel was coming into the land that God had given them, he gave them very clear, explicit instructions. And a very important instruction, especially to the one who would be king, not just David, but any of the kings, was a warning against multiplying horses and wives and silver and gold. And this next instruction was very specific. And it's interesting when you read scripture, I thought, yeah, no, not too many wives, no, no wives, no horses, no silver, gold. But, but here's something that I really picked up on. It says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law, and that meant the laws that had been laid out, approved by the Levitical priests. He was accountable to them to get this book properly written. And why? It says, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Interesting. Is the Old Testament out of date? I don't think so. How do you and I show we fear the Lord? Now, that fear is not a cowering type of fear, but a humble, loyal, faithful, respectful keeping of his word. Well, the instruction goes on to say, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So that book that was supposed to be written was to be kept by the king and he was to read those words in this book and put them into practice so that the kingdom would be blessed both now and in the future. And we can see as we read in the second, first and second kings how some of these kings did that, but there were those that didn't. And in reading these instructions that had been given by the Lord, now it's clear, in December 7th, December, I'll be okay, I'm thinking of Christmas, in Deuteronomy 17, <laughs> how did I get to December? Okay, um, we may have to edit this recording. In Deuteronomy 17 and 17, there were laws given to the uh, kings of Israel. And again, like I said, the warnings against many horses, many wives, and silver and gold. See, the king was to rely on the Lord, not in earthly resources or political power, which many of these wives brought into the marriages. 
Now, how could acquiring many wives prove a distraction and turn David's heart away? That's what it says. It says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. How could that happen? Well, these wives would bring in foreign cultures and idol worship and lead his heart astray. And we saw that. It, it did happen. Down the road, it did. Sin can be a great distraction. Trying to spend time working on a dysfunctional relationship can drain a person dry. And trying to please one woman can be hard enough. Just ask George. <laughs> Let's face it, ladies. Sometimes we can be unreasonable. Now, this is just between us because it's all women listening, okay? But all these women and all these children, probably there'd be favoritism, and one kid would do something and get away with it, and the other kids would say, hey, he got away with it. Why not me? You can imagine. But in God's instruction were the words, by keeping all the words of this law, this book, and these statutes and doing them, that his heart would not be lifted up above his brothers. In other words, he wouldn't think of himself above the law. And that's just what he had done with Uriah. He was thinking back then that the this way of behavior didn't apply to him. Doesn't sound outdated, does it? Because as we read the word of God and we think about the family of God, we're not to be lifted up above each other. The word of God applies to the same to me as it does to Audrey or Barb or Anna Mae. It applies to us evenly. And when we read it and we hear about sin and we see what we're supposed to do, it's not just for some people. It's not just for some leaders. It's for you and I. We're all on the same level. So at this point in David's story, some seeds had been sown. They're blooming, but they're not pretty. They're weeds of wickedness in the form of the rape of one of his daughters, David's daughter Tamar. She was raped by a half-brother, Amnon. Amnon was one of the six sons that David had earlier by his different wives in Hebron. And we see what had happened to bring about this situation. David finds himself the rape of one of his daughters is avenged by Absalom, her full brother. He kills Amnon and flees. And in the word, it says it took three years for him to figure out he was going to do this. That's a long time to harbor vengeance. Eventually, Absalom returns from banishment about five years later to Jerusalem and is restored in his relationship to his father, David. But all is not as it should be. And Absalom has a plan. And in 2 Samuel 15, we read of the conspiracy to overthrow the kingdom of his father. A note here. What had happened to David's rule as king? Something was amiss. How could a people who had one time anointed him, who had anointed him, and recognized that he was the one who God has chosen, now turn to Absalom? What had happened to David? Had he lost touch with his people? Was he so busy with his political aspirations building his kingdom on these marriages? Had he lost touch with the people? How easy had it been for Absalom to captivate the people? But the Lord had told David what was going to happen. He had prepared him. And so we begin Psalm 63, and we read the title of the psalm, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He's now fleeing from Absalom, his enemy. And incidentally, Psalm 3 is also one that David wrote regarding his exile. So I'm going to read each verse and we'll deal with it rather than reading the whole thing through. And that way it stays um, 
in our mind. I hope you read it uh, during the week before we came this morning. Verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here David is likening his condition to one who's in a dry and weary land. His whole being, his soul and his flesh cries out to God. Just like one who thirsts for water in the desert, he's yearning for fellowship with the Lord. And in verse 2, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Beholding your power and glory. The God he worships is the great king who promised to dwell among his people in the Ark of the Covenant. And David's yearning is for this experience he had before in that fellowship. He remembers the joy. He loved the Ark. We remember as he danced on the way to Jerusalem when he was bringing the Ark. He was over, overjoyed. We'll talk about that in a little while. He's remembering the way it used to be. And you know, these past few weeks, when George and I leave church, I just say, oh, I wish it was before. I wish it was like it was before. I miss the old Maple F. <laughs> it's not the same. And David had that pining. He was longing for communion with God as it was in those former days. And I remembered another psalm, as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. Well, verse 3, he goes on. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Your steadfast love. Another way that steadfast love is described is loving kindness. He's saying your loving kindness is better than life. Right now he's in exile. He's lost the throne. He's lost the kingdom. But he still has the Lord. And his steadfast love is better than anything else. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. We sing it often, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what he was remembering. God's steadfast love. Yeah, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And then verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Because of your steadfast love, Lord, I'll bless you as long as I live. He's committing himself to praising the Lord for the rest of his life, regardless of what may come. This does not, to me, sound like a lament. It sounds like a man who's really getting a victory. He's got nothing right now. He's had everything taken away from him but the Lord. He's in exile. He's running from his enemies. And we know that because if you glanced at Psalm 3, the opening line there is a real lament. Oh Lord, how, are, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But David is trusting in the name of the Lord. There is his ground of hope. The Lord is his hope. So in number 5, verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, ladies, you and I know that there's flavor with fat, right? You've got to have a bit of fat, have flavor. Well, David compares his relationship with God to a good meal. His soul is satisfied. And because our language is so limited when we talk about the attributes of God, and his attributes do surpass any language, 
The psalmist draws pictures for us of living needs being satisfied. He talks about the weary land, the water that he needs. And here, he's talking about a good meal. He's fleeing from the enemy, but here is a real contrast. As he meditates on his bed at night, his soul is satisfied with the thoughts of how great his God is. God has preserved him and has protected him and has watched over him. And because God is faithful, he keeps his promises. He has God's covenant promise. God had made a promise to him. And he's had times before where he's had trouble fleeing from Saul and now his own son. But he will praise God, he says, with joyful lips. In verse 6, he says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. When I meditate on you in the watches of the night. He's remembering. Even though he's uprooted as he lies on his bed, he meditates. And nothing's going to prevent him from dwelling upon the goodness of God. Do you think as he lay there, maybe he was thinking about the time they went into the tent. He brought the ark back. He was so joyful. In God's presence, there's cause for joy. And certainly on our bed at night, those are times where it can be really difficult. But I think when we get to that point at night, we need to start rehearsing to ourselves how good God is. And if that doesn't work, get up and go read the word. In Psalm 16 and 7, he wrote, I'll bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. And in Psalm 27, he, saw, he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Psalm 3, he said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And so right here in verse 6, he's, he's repeating this again. David says, My soul will be satisfied. When? When I remember you. And why? The next verse tells us why. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. He's saying, because you've been my help. You know, like I said again, those nights of sleeplessness, think back. Think back to what he's done for us. And he finishes the sentence in verse 7. He mentions wings. He says, in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. He had mentioned wings before in another psalm, in Psalm 17. He asked God, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And in Psalm 36, he says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, that old song we sometimes hear. It says, under his wings, I'm safely abiding, though the night deepens and tempests are wild. Still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me, and I am his child. So here in verse 7, David is saying, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And as I got thinking about wings, I thought, what would he be thinking about wings? And... Uh, it just, it just made me wonder, the shadow of your wings. I thought about the tabernacle where we first saw wings, where God instructed Moses to prepare with Israel the sanctuary where he was going to meet with them. 
The Ark of the Covenant was the first article they were to prepare for their worship. It was a chest which had a cover and two cherubim, one on each end, and their wings spread out over the cover. And it was there where God says, I will meet you there. And it was there in the shadow of those wings that atonement was made for sin. The high priest each year would offer the blood of a sacrificed animal on the cover of that ark, under the shadow of those wings. And that was a shadow of things to come. Pardon the pun. (laughs) But the promised one was coming, and he was going to shed his blood on Calvary. And he was going to offer eternal redemption. No wonder David could say, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Well, verse 8 He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He had the peace that passed understanding. He'd repented and he'd been forgiven. And he knew that God was upholding him. And he said, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He knew that joy of clinging to the Lord. He knew that by clinging to God, he would uphold him. And there's a mutual commitment here. And it's here for us today, too. As we cling to him, he upholds us. And you know, I think of people who for years give no thought to the Lord, no thought at all, and then something sad happens. And right away, why would the Lord let this happen? But they've never given a thought to him, never clung to him. And perhaps if they had, they would have avoided the calamity that they were in. So we see here a mutual commitment. As we cling to him, he upholds us. And so 9, verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Now this certain group, those people who seek to destroy his life, who are those? Well, they're his enemies. In earlier times it was Saul, but now it was someone very dear to him, his own son Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 17 and 18, the account of the destruction of these enemies is told. Absalom is pursuing David, and David quickly goes over the Jordan with his people. He's in retreat, and God is at work. He's got all this under control. David goes to Mahanaim. Mahanaim, that's hard to say. Absalom is in pursuit. David musters his men into three companies, and he sends them out to battle. He wanted to go out with them, but his men said, no, you're of more value than we are. You stay here. You can send us supplies from the city. And David is now willing to submit to the ones who give him counsel. He's been humbled. It's his sin that's brought this crisis about. And you can read the story of how Absalom met his death. And in verse 10, again, they were given over to the power of the sword. And we we can read it. The army went out to the field. The battle was fought in the forests of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. We can't fathom losing 20,000 men in a forest, but that's what happened. And then the death of Absalom is told. He's riding on his mule in the forest, and he passes under the thick branches of a great oak. And the hair that had been his glory caught fast in the oak tree. And the mule that he was riding on kept going, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. And Joab, David's commander, killed him. And so we read in verse 11, The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David's enemies are God's enemies. 
They're destroyed, but the king shall rejoice in God. And those who followed after Absalom, well, their carcasses would be a prey for jackals. I suppose they weren't even given a proper burial. There were so many. And those who were loyal to David and who believed he was God's chosen king would exult. And the psalm finishes with the words of the mouth, the words of the hymn, I should say. The mouths of liars will be stopped. I just thought of this hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, The Strife Will Not Be Long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. To him that overcometh, a crown of life shall be. He with the king of glory will reign eternally. There's such truth in that. We are in a battle. We're in a battle every day. And we sense it in our own sin and the things that we have to struggle with. David grieved for his son. You can read the story. But really, it was his own guilt he was grieving for and the sorrow of his loss. And one day, Christ was going to come and bear all that sorrow and that guilt. So God does preserve his kingdom. His enemies will fall. And David had to learn that he could trust. And hearing this psalm, it was a psalm of victory because he knew he had been through a lot. He had to learn that God's faithfulness in disciplining him was no less beautiful than his faithfulness in blessing him. And he was now in the valley of discipline. And I wonder, can we receive the discipline of God? The son David, our savior, was put to death on a tree. And he's risen and is now seated at the eternal throne of God. And we see, as we read this psalm, the promise of David's throne marches forward. Those enemies of David planned his demise, but the Lord brought them down. It says the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear their loyalty by his name will also rejoice. God promised David he would build him a house, and he promised him that his body, from his body would come an offspring. And we know that the kingdom of God was established. It was going to be a forever throne. He had said in Psalm 1, I have, I have set my holy king in Zion. It's a forever kingdom. We see that kingdom today going forth as the gospel goes forth. Sinners come to Christ. And the house was a, a, a palace or a, a temple. We know that it was built by Solomon. But I think it went far more than just that. We see that the kingdom of God is built up of stones. In 1 Peter 2, there's a lovely description of who we are and the house that God is building it says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now here's the part of the building. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I here today are those stones we're being built in that spiritual house. But I also thought when I was looking at all this that there was a time when Jesus was looking over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stoneth the prophets, how often would I have longed for you and gathered you as a, a, hen, does under, a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. And I thought, you know, when people refuse to believe, there's a sadness there because they're missing something wonderful. David knew it as he was lying there with nothing else. 
in that Judah, wilderness of Judah, he had the Lord. And until you come to him and know who he is, you'll never experience the real joy of life. So I just thank you as you've come out and you come every week, the living stones sitting here on chairs. It's wonderful. So let's just finish with prayer and you can still have a little fellowship. We've got time. Gracious Father, we're just so thankful. We read your word. We see how David triumphed over a sad situation. The loss, oh Lord, the loss of a dear son. He'd already lost one. And then we look at his life and we hear what he says and we read the Psalms that he's written. How victorious he was, but only because of you, because of your steadfast love. And we experience that same thing today, Lord. Things may be very, very sad in our situation today. But, oh, Father, we have you. We have you to turn to, to trust, to know that all will be well. We just have to trust in you and talk with you. And we just pray, Lord, that for those who aren't even able to join us on a Wednesday morning, that as they listen to these words and read your word, they'll sense that peace that only you can give. And for those who are maybe struggling with their, with their faith, help them, O oh Father, to see who you are, how gracious and kind you are. So thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. So many blessings, Lord, so many blessings. We just pray now you'll take us home safely, be with those who've been listening. May they be blessed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I just have to push that.